The Auckland region is growing faster than ever. The latest population forecasts show it could have 2 million residents by 2035, 15 years earlier than previously thought. Todd Nile looks at the race to reshape Auckland. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes, all the same. The Auckland region is home to more than one million people and still growing. The region's population could double in 50 years. That's another 20,000 more people every year. That was the challenge facing Auckland nine years ago, spelt out in a video launching the Auckland Regional Growth Strategy, the blueprint for a radically different Auckland heading into the future. Growth itself isn't the problem, but the effects of poorly planned growth. The big question is, can we grow in a way that maintains our livability, in a way that protects all the things we like, the things that make our region special? This was bold stuff for New Zealand, Auckland was double the size of any other urban region and growing fast. Its leaders and planners had decided it was time to reshape the region on a scale not previously attempted. Political scientist and local government specialist at the University of Auckland, Graham Bush. Anyone who looked at it closely would have thought that this is a new era um, in Auckland governance and concern by Auckland politicians for um, the future of their area. In the regional growth strategy, Auckland's councils had agreed on a master plan that would curb the region's suburban sprawl. A metropolitan urban limit was imposed, and 70% of future growth would be inside that ring. For the first time in New Zealand, there would be attractive, higher-density living in centres and corridors served by a world-class public transport system. Apartments in the suburbs, with the car spending more time in the garage. I don't think there's any single explanation for why the practical results haven't um, matched up so far to what had been hoped to be achieved through the, for want of a better word, the containment policy um, of the original regional, regional growth strategy. Planning is one thing. The reality has been different. Noel Reardon is the Auckland Regional Council's Policy General Manager and has had a key role in the growth strategy process. Auckland's population has grown a lot faster than anticipated. The growth strategy was based on 2 million by 2050 and that was based on a fast population growth rate. Auckland's growth has exceeded that. We've actually going to reach 2 million people by probably 2035, 15 years earlier than the growth strategy predicted. So. That's a major issue. The second one is that implementation has been a lot more difficult than what anyone thought. Right across the board, the sort of system around the building, planning, industry hasn't been geared towards this sort of development. This sort of development means housing like this area in the West Auckland centre of New Lynn. This was an early example of what the growth strategy envisaged. Clusters of two-level townhouses just a few minutes' walk to the big Lynn Mall shopping centre, the railway station and the bus terminus. Not all of the townhouses have weathered well, and those lacking outdoor living areas have low price as their greatest appeal. The planners envisaged thoughtfully created urban-style neighbourhoods, but the new millennium had dawned with a property boom underway, and developers moved in fast, sometimes using new building techniques that allowed greater use of untreated timber and monolithic sheet cladding. Medium-density housing began to spread, 
especially across the greenfield sites in the North Shore Centre of Albany. In the case of Albany, the urban design of many of those kind of gated communities was appalling. Joel Cayford's been a North Shore City and now Regional Councillor for 10 years. There was no bus stops, there were no shops, there were fences around in the middle of the fields and there was no amenity for kids. So those kind of urban design questions, it was really rip shit and bust by the developers. We'll turn this greenfield into houses and then we'll walk away. But the people were left living there. Um, the medium density housing that went up in Monaco, a lot of it was leaky building and people lost money in their buildings, had to be rebuilt. So, um, and there's been a lot of media publicity about this and it's made the community really, really nervous about it. Dog boxes, these are going to be ghettos, this is going to be um, a really, really retrograde step if this happens around my area. I will resist it. Any consultation that comes my way, I'm going to say no, I'm going to get organised and I'm going to stop it, and that's what's happened in many parts of Auckland. Pure numbers show that intensification has occurred. Around 40% of homes built in Auckland since 2001 have been higher density. But critics point to the poor quality and poor urban design of much of what has been built, including the proliferation of cheap small apartments in central Auckland. So why couldn't the planner's vision of a more European urban lifestyle be easily realised? Some of the answers make clear that it's been a big learning curve for all. Professor Jenny Dixon's the head of the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of Auckland. She says urban design is a relatively new practice in this country. Well, I think when you look at some of the countries overseas, they've got a much longer tradition of urban design than we have. Certainly, if you look back over 20 years, you'll have seen examples in some of the major New Zealand cities, but very little attention um, being given to issues of urban design. But now when you look around at many small cities in New Zealand and, and perhaps some of the more rural communities, you can see that it's very much becoming part and parcel of what we do. and We're paying much more attention to it than we did. And that's great. But certainly it does explain why I think we, we did get a bit of the wobbles in the 90s when, when the market was racing along. And we just didn't quite have, I think, the necessary mix of planning instruments in place to deal with it. Fletcher Residential is Auckland's biggest home builder and one which didn't embrace high-density developments early on. Its general manager, David Halsey, says while no one was completely at fault, local councils misread the market. I think councils took the opportunity of rezoning land along railway corridors within, say, 500 metres of railway line. They quickly zoned high-density. The railway line is not considered... um, by developers being an amenity that would encourage people to want to live there. So developers took advantage of this new zoning and built to the market. So in building to the market, they could only build to a certain price, which led to a poor quality build. So there was a bit of a rush of housing that appeared to fit the criteria, but but was being done for the wrong reason? Yes, probably being done for the wrong reason. Um, It's my opinion that if the zoning had been held off until such times as the railways provided a proper train service that was then seen as of some value, then better quality, more expensive housing could have been built in that location. Now what we've done is built houses to last 50 to 75 years that is not necessarily at a later date what the market is going to want in that location. I guess there was an expectation that the market would provide for better quality, medium-density housing. Penny Hulse, the Deputy Mayor of Waitakere City. That once we explained to developers that it made sense to develop next to rail lines and on passenger transport nodes, that by building higher densities 
there would be a, a huge market for people wanting to do this. There's certainly been the market, but there's been a lack of imagination about how some of those developments have unfolded. And I think possibly councils and developers have been at fault. We've perhaps not sold our vision clearly enough, and I think our developers have looked at financial gains rather than the longer term. Traditional house and section urban sprawl continues across this track of Monaco City, with tens of thousands settling in suburbs such as Danny Mora and Botany Downs, a place for people with cars. With developers complaining about the rising cost of land, you might have thought there would have been more high-density housing. Monaco City's Manager of Asset and Infrastructure Strategy, Bruce Nicholson, explains. We certainly looked into it together with developers and from the point of view of uh, trying to intensify. Um, it was found that um, we, you would end up having to sell a, an apartment um, at a price um, where you could buy a three-bedroom house at and therefore from the market's perspective um, the developers were un, you know, obviously uncomfortable with that and it didn't make economic sense to, to provide for intensification. So into the early years of the new millennium, Auckland's planners found themselves limited in their ability to make the region look the way it had been envisaged. Planning rules defined what was not allowed, but did not give councils the power to demand exactly what they wanted in any detail. And as Auckland took on an urban planning challenge unprecedented in New Zealand, councils were hurting from a planning skills shortage. Professor Jenny Dixon explains. Obviously universities have been producing graduates steadily um, during the 90s, and many of those young graduates go in into those positions, but there's always been this New Zealand experience of, of going OE. And, of course, we find, for example, that in the London boroughs you'll find many young New Zealand, Australian and South African planners keeping those boroughs going. While at home, of course, we've found it very hard to keep some of those positions occupied here. So there's a steady drain of people going overseas, obviously immigrants coming here, which has been great. But nonetheless, uh, there's been the shortage of skills, and I think that's made it difficult for councils, both in terms of simply processing the day-to-day -day requirements that, that go with the building and economic development, but similarly also in the policy and strategic areas. While there is frustration about the failure so far to make parts of Auckland's regional growth strategy stick, the Auckland Regional Council's Noel Riordan says it has also had successes. I think the issue of the appropriate form that Auckland should um, have has become much more in front of the public mind, whereas before it, it wasn't an issue. I think some of the infrastructure issues facing Auckland have been dealt with or are being dealt with, in particular the provision of public transport. Before the growth strategy was around, there was no public transport or minimal public transport in Auckland, and that's been a huge um, change there. Long way to go, but real efforts. Um, and I think the market has responded to the um, issue of intensification. I think the market has, that will, there have been a lot more apartments and terraced housing and, and intensification areas produced, given that people said that Auckland would never accept that sort of development. A major element in changing the way Auckland works and grows has been rolling out as planned. The billion-dollar-plus investment in public transport has brought new, more frequent train services, new stations and a dedicated busway on the North Shore. Some big new projects are also taking shape and the government's decided it can no longer treat Auckland as just another city.
Good afternoon, Government Urban and Economic Development Office. Tom speaking. It's known as Guido for short, the Government Urban and Economic Development Office, a mini think tank of ministries and agencies tasked three years ago with finding new ways of boosting Auckland's economic growth. Its director, Louise Mara, says Auckland was deemed to need a special focus. Auckland, in the United Nations statistics, has the most kind of disproportionate effect on the country of any city-country relationship. So it is a third of our GDP. It is a third and growing of our population. And I think it was um, Brian Easton, the economist, who said, if Auckland isn't our first global city, we won't have a second. So it was really the first off the block in terms of thinking, well, if we, we need to be outward facing, we need a global city, we need to attract um, international kind of skills and investment. So Auckland's one of our best opportunities to work with first. Louise Mara says it's not just about economic data, but also the physical growth of Auckland. What we've found is that even if you start with just looking at growth in terms of the economy, you very much come back into having to think about how Auckland functions as a city. It's not going to attract investment or people if it's seen as a dysfunctional city without good infrastructure. And more and more also just the the flair of the city, the identity of it, is really important in terms of actually being able to be an attractor, certainly because we kind of sit at the end of the world. So... Definitely the agenda was always broader, but even if you start with a narrow one, you end up having to be concerned about all of those things. Central government is also getting out the checkbook for Auckland projects that in the past might have looked to be purely local. Here in New Lynn in the west, the railways always slice through the back of the main shopping area, and as train services become more frequent, the barrier arms at the level crossing will spend more time closed. The government's chipping in with $120 million to put the double railway tracks underground. Waitakere City Deputy Mayor Penny Hulse. What it does, it means that by putting the train underground, we can develop a much more high-quality railway station and build closer to the edges of the railway track, which means medium-density and high-density housing, as well as commercial spaces right next to that railway line. So that government intervention was absolutely critical to making New Lynn the kind of thriving business centre that it, it can be, rather than a city centre cut in half by a railway line. What was the, the motivation behind the government's involvement there? Purely to realise the economic development potential of, of New Lynn and to make sure that their heavy investment in the double tracking and the rail was able to reach its maximum potential. It's a new role for central government, which Joel Cayford sees as crucial for Auckland. To intensify a town centre like Newland, like Avondale, and keep everybody happy, and it's really, really attractive and I want to keep on living there, costs money. And it costs more than the ratepayer can stand, and it usually costs more than the developer can stand. So it needs to come from somewhere. And I think that the government can take a really, really good urban regeneration, economic development stimulation role by seed funding appropriate projects. I think Mallard's attempt at putting a stadium on Auckland's waterfront was part of that. It was misplaced, if you like, and, and not really well managed. But the idea was right. Put some government money into the heart of the CBD or the heart of a town like they've done in Newland and that will then attract other private money, encourage the city council to get onto it and so the team approach will, will work.
In terms of a team approach, it's out here in working class cleanliness that one of the biggest and widest ranging government interventions in Auckland's growth may be played out. Around here, two-thirds of the population are Pacific Islanders, Maori or Asian. Nearly a third are younger than 15. The area's populations already plan to rise from 16,000 to 27,000 over 40 years through existing sites being redeveloped as high-density housing. State housing currently makes up 55% of homes and Housing New Zealand's completing a major overhaul of its Talbot Park complex. But now several floors below the Guido office, the Tamaki Transformation Programme is taking shape. It will pull in all state agencies in the area, police, health, welfare and education, the nearby University of Auckland Tamaki campus, and over a 20-year period try to change not just the neighbourhoods, but the lives of its residents by tailoring state involvement to community needs. Pat Snedden is the chairman of the Tamaki Development Board. There is extremely strong passion for the area, but there's also people saying, yeah, it's not secure enough, there's too much crime around, that we haven't got the range of business opportunities and job opportunities that we need there. We're a bit um, unconnected in the transport networks, and therefore we want a better show and a better go at these things. And we're from the state agency end of it and from the local and regional authority end of it are saying, that's a fair call. Why don't we have a go at designing a better way of doing this? And agencies are throwing themselves at that with, by putting staff in service of this, by helping conceptual thinking of this. Uh, Housing New Zealand's putting its physical assets into it. Auckland City Council and others are going to play a role in the infrastructure of it. And um, we're all saying we don't quite know where this will end, but we're going to have a go at it and see if we can't design something which um, is a powerful contribution from the state and the local authorities, but actually, more, more importantly, hooks the local community into sharing the aspiration. The Tamaki Development Board will take its case for major state investment in the area to the government next year. Auckland's local bodies are also getting more hands-on to try to show what large-scale planned urban transformation can deliver. Auckland City and regional councils jointly own the old Tank Farm industrial area near the downtown and will turn it into a commercial and residential zone with a harbourside park which they're calling Winyard Quarter. Out west, Waitakere City's own property company developed the medium-density Harbourview housing estate on farmland it owned on Te Atatū Peninsula. The company is also developing a large block of land adjacent to the Henderson Railway Station and the new Civic Centre to add new office blocks and perhaps a hotel. But Waitakere's biggest canvas is on the former Hobsonville Air Force Base, now owned by a housing New Zealand property company. It'll work with the City Council to build a new medium-density housing area in a planned way which the Deputy Mayor Penny Hulse says the private sector would not have achieved. In the case of Hobsonville, which is a beautiful piece of land with views over the water to Auckland, one would have imagined that the entire site could have been subdivided and developed for extremely expensive housing, which would suit quite a lot of people. It's also on a very important transport node and, as I say, in the middle of a, of a marine cluster. So the opportunities there with intervention to create affordable housing clusters, commercial clusters and community clusters certainly you know, has, has changed the way that that would have happened if it was just going to be developed by the private sector. I'm standing in Barry Curtis Park, the centrepiece of the Flatbush development in Monaco City. Flatbush is the biggest planned town to be built from scratch on former farmland 
and in the next decade or so will become home to 40,000 people. Over on the far side from where I'm standing will be a town centre built on city council-owned land with the council playing a significant part in the reshaping of the centre. Around the perimeter of the park it's hoped a ring of three to five storey department blocks and townhouses will add to the density. Flatbush has already won awards for its design with green fingers or parkland reaching through the housing areas. But the learning process goes on. Public transport was a key component of Flatbush's design, but several years on it's only now that a skeleton bus service is being beefed up. Monaco City Council's Bruce Nicholson. Flatbush was designed um, for public transport to be in place, but unfortunately public transport comes later and therefore we have people moving into the area and uh, without the public transport having to um, rely on motor vehicles. So as a consequence, um, it's kind of you know the cart before the horse type of um, scenario whereby lack of buses has meant people have had to uh, rely very much on the motor car. The private sector too has begun to embrace large-scale medium-density housing. It's meant to be on a villa-type theme, but it's a modern villa-type theme. So the out on the front with the decks coming out replicate how a villa home would have been in the past. But all these houses are two-storey and the houses are 220 to 240 square metres. Fletcher Residential's David Halsey is driving me through Stonefields, a former quarry in Auckland's eastern suburbs, which over about a decade will become home for 6,500 people. If we go around this corner now, for people who want um, less grounds, we've got quality two-storey terrace houses. It's the biggest single housing development in Auckland. Apartments are also planned, but Fletcher Residential is pitching its villas and terraced homes at the quality end of the market. If you have a look at these ones now, they're based around a square with a reserve in the middle, so all the houses front on or go onto the reserve. The terraced houses are about 200 square metres, so they're quite substantial four-bedroom homes. But with terraced houses starting at $600,000, it won't be the answer for everyone. Auckland is going to need some new answers as it grapples with growth. A primary school without a regular playground could be one as education planners ponder the rising population in the centre of the city. The Ministry of Education's Northern Region Manager, Ray Webb, says 25 new schools will open around Auckland in the next seven years. And the high population growth projections for the Central Business District say 1,100 extra children may have to be accommodated over the next 20 years, with a downtown primary school one option. It's interesting, um, early childhood already do it. There are seven early childhood centres in the Central Business District. Um, secondary schools already do it, such as the AGC. And uh, in Christchurch you have Discovery and Unlimited. So how might potentially a state, say, primary school in Auckland Central Business District look? Well, I think we have to develop some policy settings around size, around access, how we, develop, how we deliver the New Zealand curriculum in uh, a primary school in the Central Business District. Uh, I think we need to look at examples overseas and we might even look at some examples that exist in Wellington, such as Thorndon School. 
In the meantime, Greater Auckland's population has grown faster than expected to reach almost 1.4 million, and looking ahead the next 15 years could see the equivalent of the population of the Wellington region added to Auckland, an increase of 435,000 people. So let's rewind to that big question from the start. Can we grow in a way that maintains our livability? Most of those we've heard from agree that urban design, creating attractive-looking buildings and environments, is now getting more attention from councils and that lessons have been learnt from the past. A Royal Commission's currently pondering whether to perhaps significantly restructure Auckland's local government. But few believe that a different arrangement of councils will make any difference to dealing with urban design. Some councils are now taking a more hands-on approach with major projects, hoping to lead by example. But beyond that, whether Auckland's growth can be better shaped is a moot point. Waitakere City Deputy Mayor Penny Hulse. I think at the moment we're still struggling to convince developers that the bottom line is going to be there to reward good, high-quality urban design for medium-density housing. The shift's happening quite quickly, though, with the change in petrol or the increase in petrol prices and the shift onto trains. People are suddenly uncovering the the joys of being able to walk from home, get on a train and go to work. And we're starting to see an increased demand for people wanting to live closer to train stations. So maybe we were right a little bit too early and now the time's right for people to understand how good it is to have those choices closer to the city centres. Noel Riordan from the Auckland Regional Council says new planning practices and legislation have resolved some problems, although there are those still frustrated at projects now being built. Those developments may have been consented five or six years ago and are only now being constructed. I think what you'll see is a change. There are much tighter controls on development now to the extent that the industry complains that the controls are too tight and the delays in development are such that it makes it uneconomic. So there's a bit of a balancing act there between getting the standards right and ensuring that the development is delivered on time. Political scientist Graham Bush believes the forces driving growth are often beyond the control of both local and central government. I'm a bit sceptical that you're going to suddenly, um, and this has got nothing to do with who's the government, um, I, I just think you're not going to get that kind of um, masterful control that you that you will see actually on the ground Auckland changing noticeably to move closer to that original regional growth strategy. Regional councillor Joel Cayford, who's now back at university studying urban planning. It's never too late, but we ought to be getting on to it. We ought to be learning from what we're doing. We ought to be learning from the mistakes we've seen in, in the downtown area, how we've ripped part of our heritage up and put motorways in, how we're ripping the, the port out, but we're putting hotels on the waterfront. You know, Those are big, obvious mistakes, and we need to understand how those mistakes were made, and we need to learn from them and learn internationally and get some really good people in here to kind of come up with some ideas, design competitions, be a little bit more open to ideas and, and, and big thinking and step away from where we are. Otherwise, history will repeat. Get put in boxes, little boxes, all the same. There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of tiki-taki and they all look just the same. That programme was written and presented by Todd Nile. It was produced by Philippa Tolley.